Hey everybody, it's T.T. Benjamin from the Game Woven Podcast, and there will be much pain in the days ahead because you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tail of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The last chapter leans heavily into the game part of this hybrid model of storytelling. First, as Bazu achieves level 3, and then, as the party enters into combat, a real barroom brawl with Rosefingers and his gang in the Tumble Die Tavern of Black Creek. Dice roll, swords flash, and blood is spilt. This fight is for real, and by the end, the leader of the thugs and his henchmen are all dead on the floor. Luckily for the companions, who are trying to keep a low profile on their way to Napule, the innkeeper hated Rosefingers. He'd been living with the man's abuses for years, and now is grateful to see him slain. He's so grateful, in fact, that he offers to help the party by disposing of the bodies and taking care of the mess. He even gives them free room and board. The story then cuts to Krell, who seems to be losing his ability to concentrate on his work. Whatever it was that he saw in Ickhart's and Terragrim's cells, the visions now haunt his thoughts. In the morning, neglecting all else, he heads back down to the dungeon. Chapter 47 Part 1 Day 126 Evening Party status Party members who were wounded in the fight have each received one point of natural healing, and Bazu has cast Cure Light Wounds on Yellowfly for... six points, and again in the morning on Catsbane for... 5 points. Current hit point totals are as follows. Yellowfly, 26 of 30 hit points. Shawnee, 21 of 22. Jace, 30 of 31. Catsbane, 13 of 15. Bazu, 13 of 13. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized Read Languages, Magic Missile, Invisibility, and Mirror Image. Bazu has prayed for Detect Evil and Bless. They had left the tumble die at dawn, obeying the innkeeper's instructions to leave the room keys on the counter and let themselves out. The owner must have been up all night, for the place was about as clean as it could be. The blood had been mopped up, the bodies removed, and the table pushed back into place. A new customer just coming in would have no idea that a desperate fight to the death had taken place in that very spot mere hours before. The weather on the way to Nepule had been fair for midwinter, with winds and snowfall at a minimum and a clear blue sky overhead. Now, just as the sun was setting, Shawnee pointed ahead and announced that the walls of Nepule were visible in the distance. 
spirits lifted as every one of them began to think about a hot meal and a chance to rest their sore feet. They passed by a dozen farms as they approached the jumble of beige stone towers, arches, and walls that made up the small city. Spires poked up at the orange-pink sky, and numerous flags and pennants snapped and whipped as though restless in the light breeze. Well, I suppose one of these farms must belong to Cole's family, Yellowfly wondered aloud as they got closer. The thought put another notion in his head, and he asked, Where did Tam live in Nepule? Did he ever say? I don't think he did, replied Shane, but he mentioned Father Luden several times. They were close. Well, that was one of the names on the cipher we found under the sawmill. One of the prisoners it listed. Too bad. He might have helped us find Tam's kin. We should look for Coles, too, once we've dropped off our charge here. Perhaps we'll make some inquiries. Briar Patches, following along behind them, as ever, said nothing. Nepule, being a border town, had a tradition of charging those who passed under its gates an entrance fee. Yellowfly handed over three silver bits to cover his party of six when they reached the main gates and passed under its crumbling brown bricks. Not that the guards who took their coin were especially friendly, but there was a noticeable difference between the general feeling of Nepule and that of Silmoral. It had an atmosphere of warmth and welcome that the capital lacked. They all felt it. None of them had ever been to Camertine's westernmost town before, and so they did not know how to find their destination. Yellowfly asked one of the guards if he knew of an establishment called Towerside Fresh and Salted Meats. This is where they were to meet their contact, who would provide further instructions. The guard seemed proud of his town, leaning on his halberd and pointing out the titular watchtower to the southwest, among other notable attractions. A snow-dusted dirt road wound between a hodgepodge cluster of brown brick and pebbled ash-fronted businesses, eventually leading to one of several cob-built structures. The shingle outside showed a severed pig's leg crossed with a notched cleaver in front of a tower, but no lettering. This must be the place, said Yellowfly, looking up hopefully from the sign to the actual watchtower looming above them. You got very good timing, called the voice from within as Yellowfly tried the door and found it unlocked. I was just about to close up for the evening. Come in from the cold and tell me what you will have. I have a fresh cop boar here that's sure to tempt you. The butcher was a heavyset man with rosy cheeks and an upturned nose. A short shock of reddish hair stood up on his crown. He looked them over as they entered, not bothering to hide some mild surprise at seeing a group of strangers. Newton Appeal? He asked, friendly enough. I've not seen your faces before, but as I say, I fresh killed boar meat, lovely ribs. I have the head as well. Did his gaze linger on Briar's face for an extra half a moment? Yellowfly couldn't be sure, but there was one way to find out. The snake throws her enameled skin. The butcher's smile dropped, and he replied in a low voice. Weeds to wrap a fairy in. You must be Yellowfly. I was told you might show up someday. Yes, I'm he. You must be Master Haylorn. The butcher nodded by way of reply and came out from behind a thick work table that held his knives, scales, and weights. There was also a slab of meat and a pile of salt he'd been working on. Begging your pardon. Haylorn walked past them and turned the latch on the door, locking them in. Will you come with me, please? He bade them follow him into a back room, where cuts of meat hung from hooks on walls and rafters alike. Some small barrels and crates were stacked neatly against one of the cob walls. Against the other, a rickety staircase led them to the upper level. Here, they found simple and modest living arrangements. There was a small collection of books on a mostly empty shelf, a flimsy table, a single narrow bed, and a chair with a blanket draped over the back of it. It's not much, but you'll only be here a few hours. Make yourself comfortable. Halorin lit a candle and put it on the table before he turned back to the stairs. I'll be back within the hour. 
With that, he descended to the first floor, where the companions could hear him rustling into some winter clothes before unlocking the door and relocking it behind him as he left. Well, I suppose there's nothing to do but wait. Shane and Jace sat down on the bed. Briar, silent as ever, was given the only chair. Fly and Catsbane sat on the floor and on the stairs, respectively, and they all settled in to wait for the butcher's return. Chapter 47 Part 2 Day 126 Evening Krell had spent much of the day in the dungeon. He had forgone breakfast and headed straight there after he awoke. He was desperately and morbidly curious to see if his little experiment had produced any results. It turned out that it had. He knew it as soon as he beheld the warden's pallid and sweaty face. The night before, he had instructed the man to pull two prisoners from the communal pens and put them into the solitary cells, where Ickhart and Terrigrim had been killed the night before. Of course, the two prisoners he selected had resisted, but they were no match for the beefy warden, and he had quickly subdued them. Then, again, as instructed, he had put them into the solitary cells. Krell had insisted that the guard then watch these solitary cells consistently and with unflinching vigilance, and the warden had done so, faithfully but from the other end of the corridor. Whatever might happen, he did not want to be too close. I, I did, my lord, just as you said. I truly did. I set up my chair there at the end of the hall and watched all night. The priestess there... The warden indicated Aranessa's cell with a fat finger. She asked me a dozen times to fetch her holy symbol. Of course I ignored her like you told me to. The guard's sweaty face shone in the torchlight. Presently, it contorted into a mask of worry and contrition. Uh, what not how I came to fall asleep. I, I was too afraid to fall asleep, if I'm being honest, my lord. I, I never fell asleep on the job before. No, no once, not ever. I, I swear to that. There was something in the man's face that made Krell believe him. When he prompted him to continue, the warden said, And then uh, I wake up to all this commotion. I thought I'd be drugged or something. The loudest of all that was that woman I just put into solitary. She's wailing like a spirit she was. So I go over to see what's amiss, and she's just pointing to the other cell and screaming. That other cell. Well, you know what I found there. I had to smack the woman across the face to get her to shut up in the end. She'll be all right, I suppose. Anyway, I was about to come and get you when you walked in. Krell had listened to the warden's story with growing curiosity. Then... After an ungentle assurance that he wouldn't lose his job or be otherwise punished for falling asleep at his post, Krell dismissed the man for the whole day. When he had first arrived, he had walked the length of the hall to check on the solitary cells. He found the female prisoner, one of the many clerics of Sadal, unconscious on the floor of her cell, but alive. The other cell was an abattoir, dripping gore from ceiling to floor. This time, Krell did not recoil but regarded the scene the way he might have once looked upon a fine painting or tapestry. There was beauty in what he beheld. So many hues and folds of red and pink and white were contained in the human body. All thoughts of duty, all concern, diminished as his eyes drank in the scene. Idly, he ruminated. Carrick was long gone. He had probably fled, and why would he wish to return? Krell hoped he never would. He certainly had no intention of hastening their meeting by tracking him down. Sirodioth, the mad wizard, was still at large. He was now potentially an enemy, but what of it? It seemed he had likewise fled. Krell wondered if there was any merit to his great claims of arcane power anyway. He had never seen any proof of the warlock's magic. 
Perhaps Sarodioth was no more than a con man. Krell had not seen much of Captain Sindwan recently either. He had the sense the man was avoiding him. Well, he was fine with that, too. The less they saw of each other, the better. Staring into the solitary cell, he remained in the dungeon for hours. Even when it began to stink, even when the other prisoners began to implore him for the smallest mercies, and he didn't move from that spot until evening when he selected a fresh prisoner with whom to continue his experiment. This man was too old and feeble to offer any resistance as Krell hauled him out of the communal pen, one-handed, keeping his sword out and pointed at the other inmates should they decide to be courageous. None did, and the old man went into the cell, still slick and dripping with the previous occupant's remains. There, he fell to his knees and immediately began to pray. Krell's plan was to stay there all night and watch. He had to know what could cause such absolute ruination. Whatever was coming into the dungeons and killing his prisoners, he intended to see it with his own eyes. The thing that's been haunting the dungeon and causing mayhem will return later in the middle of the night. Even though that visit is still a few hours away, I'm going to have Krell make a saving throw now to see if he'll fall asleep as the warden did. This sleep is a magical effect, and so Krell, being a 7th level fighter, will need a 12 or better on a d20 to save. He has a wisdom score of 13, which affords him plus one on the roll. Here we go. I've got a three. Looks like he'll slip into oblivion while the thing is present and miss everything. Are you old enough to remember physical gaming magazines? You know the ones. The ones you bought from your local game store or ordered via mail. The ones we couldn't wait to read back in the 80s, 90s and 2000s. The ones that filled our little gaming hearts with joy. Well, I'm bringing back that joy. D12 Monthly is a zine for the world's oldest role-playing game and comes out at the beginning of each and every month. You can get a PDF for free from my website or get a printed physical copy sent to you by joining my Patreon or buying direct from the site. Better than just getting bills in the mail, go to yumdm.com. That's yumdm.com to scratch that itch that's been bugging you for the last 20 years. Chapter 47, Part 3 Day 126, night. Party status. The party status is unchanged. An hour later, the companions were collected by the butcher, who instructed them to don their winter clothing once again and follow him into the night, where a thin half-moon shone overhead like the silver edge of Yellowfly's blade. Nepule after sunset was vastly different from Silmoral. Although there were guards abroad, in numbers, the twin feelings of paranoia and oppression were not present. Haloran led them to a large tavern of cob, timber, and thatch construction. A round chimney of brown bricks issued forth a plume of aromatic smoke. The sign outside the tavern showed a rearing white stallion, but gave no name. Images without text seemed to be a common thing in this town, Yellowfly noted. They were met by a woman who evidently knew the butcher well. She would have been recognized by Cole if he had been with them. She was the notably ill-favored woman who, during the King's three days of blood and justice, had leapt bravely onto the stage to free those who were slated for execution. To the companions, however, she was a stranger. The woman conducted them to a corner table where she bade them sit, eat, drink, and enjoy the upcoming show. At the end of the night, she told them, a conversation would take place. Before she took her leave, she whispered something to Briar Patches, and, without a word or any acknowledgement of their efforts, he departed their company to follow her into a back room. Yellowfly and the others were happy to follow the woman's recommendations. 
They ordered food and drink while taking in their surroundings. The tavern's main room was multi-level. There was an elevated gallery along one side, and this is where the companions had been seated. It had smaller tables and chairs arranged in a line, and facing the far wall, where one could see a stage. This stage was presently empty, save for a stool, and, leaning against it, a stringed instrument with a kettle-shaped body and a headstock of scrolled woodwork. The main area was set slightly lower than all else. It contained a combination of long spruce tables and benches. The fireplace, along with several dozen reed lights, washed the place in a warm amber glow. The tavern was almost full, too, another difference from Selmoral. After a time, a serving girl brought them plates of meat and tankards of strong ale. Looking over at the bar, Yellowfly saw two men at the counter. One was in his later years, the other in his thirties or forties. They might have been father and son, judging by their features and general appearance. Yellowfly sighed happily and took a long drink from his tankard. He was looking forward to getting paid for their work and thought that Nepule seemed a nice place to spend some time. They couldn't very well go back to Silmoral. Perhaps they could spend the rest of the winter here. He picked up a piece of roast duck on his fork, ate it, and then speared a small potato dripping in butter. They were all just about finished their meal when a hush fell over the room. Heads turned as the evening's performer emerged from the kitchens and strode across the room, waving and saying hello to various individuals as he went. He was a young man of no more than five and twenty, with straw blonde hair cut in the pageboy style like Catsbane's. He wore a doublet of green crushed velvet and a matching cap. After mounting the stage, he picked up the stringed instrument, sat on the stool, and began to sing in a tone of disarming simplicity and beauty. <clears throat> the poor soul sat sighing By a sycamore tree Sing willow, willow, willow With his hand in his bosom And his head upon his knee Oh, willow, 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 willow Oh, willow, 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 willow Shall be my garland Sing all a green willow Willow, willow, willow By me By his moans Sing willow, willow, willow The true tears fell from him Could have melted the stones Oh, willow, 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 willow Oh, willow, 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 willow Shall be my garden Sing all the green willow The companions have noticed the two men at the bar, but for their part, they have been actively studying the PCs and discreetly trying to take the measure of them. In addition to running a tavern, one of them holds a position in the Church Thieves Guild, while his partner heads another similar organization of some significance. These men are the ones who will provide protection and sanctuary to Briar Patches. They intend to meet the PCs after the last patron goes home, but they are not entirely sure how much they trust them. If Cole or Tam had been here, things might have been different. I'm going to make a reaction roll to see what their gut impressions of the party will be. 
This will be a straight roll of 2d6, no modifiers, higher is better. I've got a 9 on the dice. That's quite favorable. I think they watch the way the companions interact with each other and get a good sense about them. Furthermore, this result gives me an idea about the direction their conversation will take when they do meet. The bard played on for another dozen songs or more. He was, without a doubt, the most talented performer Yellowfly and the others had ever heard. His voice was mellow, never strained, and his unique baritone lute, if that's what it was, produced complex and complementary chords and single note harmonies under his dexterous fingers. The end of his performance marked the end of the evening for most of the tavern's patrons. They finished their drinks and rose to go home right after the bard left the stage, shaking hands and stopping to chat briefly with members of the audience as he went. Within a half hour, the place was all but empty. One of the bartenders wiped down his station with an oiled cloth, while the other counted copper coins into a strong box. There were three serving girls as well, and they, like the bartenders, divided the closing duties between them, with one sweeping the floor, another collecting empty mugs and plates, and the third following the second with the damp cloth with which she wiped the tables. While these mundane and routine jobs were taking place, the kitchen door opened, and the ill-favored woman who had seated them at the beginning of the night appeared. She approached their table and asked if they had enjoyed the show. Yellowfly replied sincerely, He's the finest talent I've ever seen, I should say. What's his name? When the woman told him, he rocked back on his chair. That was Hamnet Rattlestaff. Vessel in his tears. I thought he'd be older. And no offense, but I wouldn't have thought to find him in the pool. The woman had laughed at that and said there was precious little work for bards until morals late. And besides, the tavern owner was a man of some esteem. She had an accent that marked her as a native Nipulik. It reminded Yellowfly of coal. This woman, who'd still not given her name, bade them follow her. When they rose to do so, they saw her heading not for the kitchen, but for a little staircase that led down to a basement level. By instinct, Yellowfly did not want to be in an unfamiliar place with likely only one exit, and so he said, Can we not conclude our business here, where it's warm and comfortable? The woman did not turn around. She simply said, Come with me, before taking the stairs. The others hesitated until Yellowfly shrugged and followed. The cellar was dirt-floored. Thick, heavy rafters spanned the low ceiling. This level appeared to be a single, large room. It featured a stout, round table ringed with chairs, enough to seat seven. There were crates and barrels lined up against two walls. The other two sported shelves bowed under the weight of various sundry supplies and foodstuffs. There was also an empty barrel at the foot of the stairs, to which the woman pointed and said, Put your weapons here. Yellowfly reluctantly agreed to surrender all but the Silverthorn, though he did not offer any explanation for it. The woman gave him a quick once-over, shrugged, and told them to sit and wait. Then she went back up the stairs. A few minutes passed, in which Shawnee shot daggers at Yellowfly with her eyes, unhappy to have been disarmed, though she still had a dagger hidden in her boot. Yellowfly avoided her eyes and instead sat with his elbows on the table and fingers steepled in front of his face, waiting. They sat in uncomfortable silence for a few minutes before they heard the sounds of people at the top of the stairs. There was a muffled conversation going on, but it was impossible to make out what was being said. At least, it would have been impossible for most people. Shane raised a finger in the air with one hand, pointing to her ear with the other. The gesture wasn't strictly necessary. Nobody was making any noise. All the same, she squeezed her eyes shut in concentration as she tried to overhear the words being exchanged. As a sixth-level thief, Shawnee can hear noise on a roll of one to three on a d6. Everyone present can tell that the conversation is between two men, but only Shawnee has a chance to hear what they're actually saying. 
Here's the roll. A two. That's a success. How interesting. Well, I know what she hears, but her companions will have to wait because before she has the chance to tell them, the two barkeepers appear at the bottom of the stairs. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help to support it, there are lots of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum Worldbuilding Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone for their support of the show. At this time, please allow me to share one of your kind reviews. This one is from the Podbean app. It was posted by Agent 13. Agent 13 writes, Finally all caught up, and I have to say, I love the characters of your first season, but I'm finding I'm digging this season's characters even more. You have a great balance of thrilling adventure and dramatic character moments. Often when folks think of serious and dramatic tone in an RPG actual play, it's easy to fall in the edgy just to be edgy category, and there's never been an episode of yours where I felt that happening. Great show as always. Thanks very much, Agent 13. I think I was probably a bit guilty of edgelordishness in the first few episodes of season one, if I'm being honest. Anyway, I am so glad you're enjoying the show and getting into the characters, and I too am curious to see where it all goes. Your review is super appreciated. Thank you. I'd also like to thank this episode's single guest voice actor, James T. Hook of Tainted Edge Games as Halor and the Butcher. Thanks so much for your contribution to the show, James, and welcome to the cast. I've also brought in some heavy hitter music talent this episode. I reached out to YouTube's The Bard Band months and months ago after finding their version of the Willow Song in a kind of lucky stumble upon. They graciously gave me permission to use the song here, and for that, I'm extremely grateful. For listeners who'd like to get in touch with me, I'm at Manticore Tale on X or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. And there's always email, taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Finally, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff, like art, maps, tables, crafts, and show notes. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Oh, hi there! Do you like D&D? Do you like talking about D&D? Do you like listening to people talk about D&D? Then I've got just the thing for you. Here at the Roll4 Podcast, we talk about D&D. We explore in-game history and lore. We deep dive into races and classes. And we discuss our personal experience and offer advice to DMs and players both old and new. And we don't do it in this ridiculous voice. The Roll4 Podcast. Find us wherever you get podcasts.